In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, Travel Tales listeners, it's your host, Aisling Green. While we prep season three out August 25th, we wanted to share another summer replay. You're about to hear our episode with Julia Cook, who's the author of Come Fly the World, the Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am. The book chronicles the lives of the women who flew for this legendary airline during the 60s, 70s, and beyond. And this episode had particular significance for me because my mom was a flight attendant for many years. She actually just retired mid-pandemic. From her, I learned that it is a tough but fun job. It requires stamina, people skills, diplomacy, the ability to stomach turbulence. It opened up another side of the industry to me, and I will never look at flight attendants the same again. They work so hard, and they're asked to do so much more than passengers ever really know. So just a little PSA as we travel this summer. Be kind to your flight attendants. And if you want to acknowledge their work, here's a tip from my mom. When she flew standby, she'd bring a sealed food gift or some other token of her appreciation. Okay, back to Julia. Julia's dad actually worked for Pan Am until she was nine. But it wasn't until she attended an event years later hosted by the Airlines Historical Foundation that her interest was really sparked. There, she met a couple of former stewardesses. By the way, in this episode, we're going to hear that word, stewardess, a lot. Because most of the women who didn't transition into more modern flight attendant roles in the late 70s prefer this title. They say the job as they knew it no longer exists. Julia was fascinated by these women who she says seem to have lived life elbow deep in adventure. Julia began to reach out to other former Pan Am stewardesses, and that's where Claire and Karen, who were with Pan Am for decades and who we'll hear from shortly, come in. Because as Julia researched the book, she discovered that these stewardesses were pioneering feminists, strong, adventurous women who blazed trails and lived life mostly on their own terms. She also discovered that something about flying and working together bonded many of these women for life. Here's their story. I'm sitting in a car, driving through a blizzard in Montana in February. The light is a velvety lavender color. The winding two-lane road is white, and I'm driving about 20 miles an hour through a mountain pass in a rental car with no four-wheel drive, which has already gotten stuck in the snow once. 
I've left a day early from the home of a woman I've been interviewing for four years, Karen Ryan. This is the first time I've met her in person, in her home, an hour and a half from Missoula under normal circumstances. Now it's two hours, then three, then four hours for me to reach the airport hotel I'm staying at in order to, I really, really hope, fly out tomorrow. Also, I'm 26 weeks pregnant. But one thing I know is that the women I've been interviewing for the last four years would probably have done the exact same thing in my shoes, launched themselves into a blizzard to try to catch a plane. This interview in Montana is for a book I'm writing on the international stewardesses of the 60s and 70s. I've already gone to luncheons and reunions in Berlin, Bangkok, and Savannah to meet and then interview these women, who are now in their 70s and 80s. As a group, I'd never met so many independent, curious, international women before. I was studying how stewardesses of the 1960s seemed to have embodied so many of the social changes that came much later. Globalization, third-wave feminism, soft diplomacy. But underneath the intellectual, I felt an intense desire to know how these women's lives had been shaped by their constant travel, what kind of freedom they had found, and maybe most importantly, how their relationships with one another had contributed to and amplified that freedom. Because I wanted to live like that too. Independent, supported by a community of fearless women, women like Karen. I don't know, just something about wandering around by myself, just to kind of soak in the ambience of the place. Karen Ryan loved flying for the access it afforded her to wander around the world alone. Her friends from back in the day describe her as blonde, beachy, pretty, and plucky. But what I learned from talking to Karen was that she was also an anti-authoritarian romantic with near-religious faith in wanderlust and individualism. As a stewardess, she felt that she was in good company. I didn't realize at the time how picky Pan Am was because who knew? You know, they didn't tell us that, but my gosh, these were pretty exceptional women. There's something about the takeoff. You're sitting there in the jump seat. No one else can hear you. The passengers can't hear you. And I think there's a lot of stewardesses that exchange really profound thoughts during some of those moments. These exceptional women, they weren't just Karen's colleagues. They were her support system when she got divorced from her college sweetheart. When my marriage dissolved, I really leaned on a lot of Pan Am flight attendants. I don't know how people go through emotional times without someone to share with or vent with. You know, I'm certainly not that stoic person that can just hold it all inside. So I thought it was very healing for me. I'd also been interviewing a woman named Claire Christensen, a very tall, very self-possessed woman who lives now on an island in the Puget Sound and who worked for Pan Am for more than 20 years first in flight service, and then as one of the few women promoted into management. When I went to stewardess training 65 years ago, it was almost as if I had come into a group of pre-selected friends because I got along so well with everyone that was selected to train with me. Uh, I, three of the other girls and I started living together and two of them remained my lifelong friends. Claire had quit flying after a decade and worked her way up in management at Pan Am, supervising stewardesses, and eventually working in training and recruiting too, along with a small group of other ambitious women. I think what brought us so close together in the Manhattan Flight Service office was that we all saw each other every day and had the same time off to do things on the weekends and the same holidays off. She told me about how they took French lessons and bought season tickets to the ballet to share among the five of them. On three-day weekends, they would travel to India or Rome or London. 
they'd sleep on the plane. And when they arrived, they'd see West End shows in London or haggle for rugs in Delhi. Or, you know, buy marmalade. I remember my husband didn't like to travel that much. And I would make up excuses to travel. And he was born in England and he loved orange marmalade. So I used as an excuse that I would have to go to England to get more orange marmalade for him. I never told him how easy it was to get it in the States, but he would just love it when I'd go to England and return with four jars of orange marmalade. He thought I had done this just for him, that I had suffered through a weekend in London just to get him orange marmalade. When Claire left Pan Am and finally finished her college degree, which she'd put off years earlier to start flying in the first place, these same women had hosted a senior prom in one of their Manhattan apartments. They shopped for cheesy gowns together at thrift stores. They pinned corsages to one another. Of course, our husbands thought we were crazy, but we had the best time. Claire had once told me that her women friends had been the most important relationships in her life. You can be close to a husband, she said once, but there's just something about friendship. She's 87 now and still traveling. She's going on a cruise next year with one of her flying friends. When I asked Claire for advice about keeping friendship strong, she had said, keep in touch, keep in touch, keep in touch. I hadn't really thought that much about friends and travel before I'd began to spend time with these women in the present day, talking about their pasts. I'd gone to college, then lived abroad for five years in my 20s, and I'd met an incredible range of people from all over the world. I stayed in touch with some friends and lost touch with others. But as I'd begun to interview these women, I'd started to make more of an effort to keep my good friends closer, inspired in part by my conversations with Karen and Claire. Really, travel and risk, going far from home, staying longer, had always been intertwined in my mind. I've always thought most clearly and felt most connected with myself in movement. Now I felt connected with my son, too, even though he wasn't yet born. The trips I'd taken with him when he was so easily portable inside my body had amplified my feeling of devotion to him. But that devotion had an aftertaste. I was terrified of what I'd lose once he was born and fully in the world, travel I wouldn't undertake. And if I'm honest, driving through that blizzard in Montana while I was so pregnant, it was a little more risky than I felt great about in that very moment. I didn't love that shift of perspective. I'd always been more used to saying yes to a risk than no. But there I was. I understood now that if I was going to have children and be happy about it, I'd have to figure out how to find some kind of in-between. Too much risk might be a terrifying drive through a blizzard, but I did want a milder sort of adventure with friends I loved. So I sent an email to some old close friends as I planned my visit to the next stewardess I was interviewing, asking if anyone wanted to meet me anywhere in or near the Bahamas. And incredibly, they said yes. We decided on Miami. And so off I went, hugely pregnant, happy to fly to beaches instead of blizzards. Happier yet to see my friend Kelly, who's always been the most efficient of packers, rolling up to me in our hotel's bar with her tiny suitcase and then another friend, and another. And soon we were five women who hadn't been together in years, leaning toward one another talking. As I bobbed in the ocean later that day, dodging seaweed, 
me and my growing belly and my friends, I realized that this impulse to bring everyone together, it was the right one. The whole weekend, we found ourselves in places that we don't often get to in our daily lives, even if it was hardly high adventure. A swim in the ocean, a nice restaurant by the bay, the anonymity of our hotel. All of us, whether we had kids or no, kept talking about how happy we were to be together in a context other than where we live. It was also, I thought, seeing other women equally committed to being individuals despite changing life circumstances. The destination itself didn't seem to matter, and yet we kept talking about where we'd go next. It's been two years, and we're thinking about our next destination. Staying in touch, staying in touch, staying in touch. That was Julia Cook. Julia just got back from a trip with her three children to Cape Cod, where she taught her two-year-old to surf in an inner tube. And yes, she has remained committed to her friend trips. The next one, she says, is planned for February 2022, though the destination remains unknown. To hear more from Julia, check out her website, juliacook.com. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales, when we hand over the mic to our listeners. Now let's hear from Brian McCaffrey from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In July 2017, I traveled for a two-week holiday in Peru with a close friend's daughter. Only days before we left, Caroline graduated college, and this trip was a celebration. Tragically, nine months before her graduation, Caroline's 19-year-old brother and best friend, Scotty, was killed in a car accident. Working with me to plan this trip was a welcome distraction. Scotty loved the outdoors, and Caroline knew she'd be thinking of him on our journeys. Our adventures included hikes in the Amazon jungle and the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Caroline brought mementos of Scotty with her, a reminder that he traveled with us. Down to nearly our last day, we were set to explore Lake Titicaca. Starting our day with a chilly sea kayaking excursion, we glided across the lake, absorbing the quiet, the peace, and the beauty of the water, the mountains, and the sky. While paddling nearly alone in the bright morning sun, On the glass-like surface, Caroline quietly said to me, Scotty's here. We were met on the shore by a local innkeeper with fresh herbal tea, and after a short walk to his home, met his family, and enjoyed a traditional and delicious Pachamanca meal. Suitably fueled, we hiked a trail on the Capachica Peninsula, to the top of a hill called Aki Karos, near the village of Lashan. Fittingly, at the highest point of our trip, Caroline held a memento of Scotty in her hands and looked to the sky. Watching her with tears in my eyes, I knew we weren't alone. Our local guide was incredible, supportive, encouraging, and very much in touch with the moment. He pointed out we had seen a beautiful hawk fly low and directly over us as we reached the summit. He said, 
Surely that is your brother here with us. As we hiked down with our hearts full and got into our van, it began to rain. Driving away, we took one last look at the top of Akikaros, and there, stretching from the lake to the hilltop, was a beautiful rainbow. That was listener Brian McCaffrey. Up next for Brian, he's hoping to head south to hike the wilds of Patagonia. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? <laughs>